Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 20, and that'll be the passage that uh, Matt Clegg will be preaching from this morning, and it's, uh, it's a good one, it's a tough one, and it's the last one of the bad news, so to speak, in the opening chapters of Romans 3 before we uh, enter into the good news next week. So feel free to follow along as I read. Then, what advantage has the Jew... Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. So this is a, uh, as Will said, a fairly heavy passage, to put it lightly. Um, and it is the culmination and the summary of the bad news that we've been driving for in our study of Genesis, the first part of Genesis and first part of Romans. As these books display for us in the first sections, Uh, a diagnosis of the human condition, who God is and who people are and who people are before Him. And in the chapters previously, then Paul has already proved in chapter 1 that the non-religious or the Gentile person is in rebellion against God. But then he turned, he incites indignation from the religious person and uses that and turns it around on the Jews, right back at them, the religious people, and proves that they are in rebellion against God's too as they break God's law. 
So unless there is a new heart, a heart that exclusively loves God and prioritizes His way above any other way, then the religious and the non-religious, the Jew and the Gentile, all come before God in the exact same footing with their own record of how much they love Him to stand on. So there's really no difference. And so this invites this discussion that Paul is going to go on now. So is there really any advantage to being a Jew? Or we would say, is there really an advantage to the religious law and the religious ritual that God has given if we're all the same and we all stand on our own record? And this discussion is going to center on, as we see here in the first couple of verses, the law of God as these oracles of God. What is their use in the first place? Uh, I want to start off with a quick word of prayer that the Spirit would help through this discussion, both for me and for all of us as we listen in our hearts, and then we will undertake it. Dear Father, we just want to come before you and acknowledge my own and our own brokenness and frailty as um, in an attempt to wrestle with your word that you have given to us as a gift. So I just pray that through your spirit that he would work, uh, that he would give me words to say, that it would be clear, but for all of us that he would convict and he would lead us all to see Jesus and the beauty that is in him. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start off with an illustration. You've probably all noticed that things only work well if you use them in the way that they were intended to be used. Uh, I like to play the guitar. Uh, I've played the guitar for a long time. Uh, It started when I was fairly young and was never all that talented, but it was fun. So I played every day and um, practiced. got better and better and better. But as I watched my idols on TV, I noticed that they all have really nice guitars. And so if you want to be like them, you kind of have to have a really nice guitar. What I really wanted was an American-made Fender Stratocaster and not a Japanese-made instrument. And that is not a slight against Japanese craftsmanship, which is great, but in musical instruments, the off-brand instruments tend to be Japanese-made. So, I'm improving. Many Christmases and birthdays go by ending in disappointment. And finally... I'm able to purchase the guitar that I really, really want, an American-made Fender Stratocaster. And in my mind, because I have this thing, I have arrived as a musician. I am a real musician like all of the rest. Now, I also have a brother who's younger than me, and he wasn't that interested in guitar when we were kids, so I was in the room playing, practicing, while he was off doing other things, didn't care. And much, much later, he started to learn to play the guitar, too. And annoyingly so, in a very short amount of time, far surpassed my own ability to play the guitar. So I remember after getting this guitar, he came over one day and I was playing it and I was really proud, showing it to him, you know, see I'm a real guitarist because I have this thing and I made the mistake of letting him play it. And he played it and the whole thing came alive. And it displayed the talent and the ability that was underneath because that's what its purpose. So if you haven't noticed, the purpose of a guitar is not to make you look good, but is to play it and for it to display the talent 
um, of the one who is playing it more effectively. I miss the purpose of what it was for, and I used what I had as an advantage to make me look good and be a part of the club and to look down on others. And I think if we look into it, there's a parallel with the way that the Jews were using the law of God, the religious people, that they had it and that they were a chosen people throughout history that God had chosen, though they were insignificant, they are going to be my special people and I'm going to give them my law I'm going to give them the sign of the relationship with the circumcision. And so what they took that to mean is just by having them, themselves, that they were special. And that regardless of how much they were to break the law or mess up, whatever, it's not really about that. What it's really about is that we were given these gifts that make us different from everybody else. We are God's special people. And this is brought out in verse 3 as we see this, that Paul is asking this question, if some were unfaithful, does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? And that reveals the assumption under the question, which is the opposite. That because God is faithful, it should nullify my own sin so that when I break God's law, it doesn't matter. He's going to be patient with me. He's not going to be patient with those outside of the people of God. And so I think Paul, through all of this, there's some confusing questions as he is meandering, but I think he's making a very simple point, is that he is telling us what is the proper use of God's law, what is it actually given for, how is it supposed to function in the middle of the people of God. And in order to look like that, as we just follow through this as Paul goes, he's going to explain three points. Who are the proper objects of God's law? As who is it directed towards? Who is it supposed to convict? And then he's going to go on with that being said, what does it actually say if we use it focused on the proper objects? And then once we see what it says, what is the conclusion that we're supposed to draw from what God's law says? So that's where we're going to go. First, proper objects, and then the proper message, and then the conclusion that we're supposed to draw. Uh, Let's start off with the proper objects. If you'll look... As I said, in the first three verses, we're having a discussion of God's law. What is the advantage of the Jew? Uh, We're talking about the oracles of God that were given. What is the proper use? And how are they supposed to function? And God is comparing through chapter 2 and brought out in verse 3 that there's one option that said that the law is supposed to separate us religious people from non-religious people to show that we're better. That because we have them, then we are special before Him. We might say that if we grew up in the church, if we had Christian parents, if we were baptized, if we went to Sunday school, we know all the right answers, it really doesn't matter uh, that much how we live because we're a part of the group and God was going to be patient with us. That's one option. But then in verse 4, Paul makes a very spectacular move here and he brings in another teacher of God's law other than the Jewish chief teachers by this quotation. If you'll notice, the passage we read from Psalm 51 earlier is where we find this quotation. So Paul is taking David, the most spectacular and special king that Israel has had. If anyone should be faithful among the people of God and should be favored and patient with, it should be this guy. But he uses an illustration to show what David actually does with this law and specifically who he directs it towards. Is this directed to condemn those out there 
and prove me safe? Or is it the other way around? And we see it happens the other way around. If David, you're not familiar with the story, David saw a woman bathing from the roof. He saw a roof. He saw that she was beautiful. And he lusted after her in his heart. And he took her and committed adultery with her. But it didn't stop there. That started a drastic chain of events where he dug himself into a deeper and deeper and deeper hole. He had to cover this up because she had become pregnant. He had to do something with her husband. And so he conspired to dispose of him. He put his whole army in danger. I mean, it is a climactic disaster of decision-making from beginning to end. This is the special king of Israel that the whole people of God look up to. But what does he do when he is confronted with God's law? He doesn't use it here in order to say it's not that big of a deal what I do because I'm special, I have the law. Rather than directing it to others, he turns it around and he directs it on himself and demonstrates that the proper use of God's law is not to condemn those outside but to look inside and to convict us. Look at what he says. He says that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you're judged. Rather than blame shifting, rather than making excuses, he turns to God and says, God, you are right. You are righteous and I am not. And in doing this, he actually displays the glory of God and how God is the one in the right. But it's more than that. In doing this, as David uses the law to convict himself first, David is the first one to go and find where the mercy of God actually is. It is not in the righteous. It is those who have been convicted by God's law and who look to Him and beg for mercy. That through David's use of the law on himself, David is actually the first one to go and find where the faithfulness of God is extended, not to the special, but to those who are wrong and who are just the same as everybody else. But it goes one step further from that. If you'll look, if you'll, you can flip over if you would like to. I'll read it for you. If you were to follow in this psalm that we read... He's giving his confession. He gets down to verse 13. David says, after he has confessed, after he's given a new heart, what then will he be able to do? He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. You see this move that David makes? He demonstrates for Israel the proper objects of God's law that is to convict me first, not them. And through doing that, he ends up discovering where the faithfulness and the mercy of God is actually found. And in finding that for himself, in humility, he is then able to teach. And he is able to show others what he has learned for himself, where mercy can be found for sinners. The proper object of God's law is towards the people of God, not towards those outside of it. And Paul says this specifically in verse 19. I'm going to give you an example, and this is advantage because this is all about God's mercy and where to find it. And is the hardest thing to admit. None of us want to admit that we're wrong. And if we read down these verses, you can just see it. It's like 
in these responses that Paul's getting. If you ever baited a worm on a fish hook, the squirming and will do anything to get outside of it and not be baited. Look at all these responses they're getting. Like, well, how can that be fair? It can't be my fault. Like, if God's righteousness is displayed, then by if my sin displays His glory, then He surely He can't judge us. It's not really His my fault. It's got to be. You know, it does something good for Him. He shouldn't be able to judge me. Or why don't we keep on sinning like I shouldn't have to change. It's not, I'm not accountable to change. I can just stay how I am. You just see this squirming of trying not to admit that maybe we are the ones who are at fault. I, um, I was having a conversation with my wife this week, which was one of those conversations that started about something very small and insignificant. And it ended up with an assessment from her of bringing out some patterns that I've been doing over a long time that are sort of related to this situation, but not really. They're really about something else. And I was really, really frustrated in this whole conversation and saying that, you know, it's, it's not my fault. Like, I can't help this. There's all these other circumstances that are making me do this, and I can't stop. I can't fault. So, like, how can you... You know, lay this on me. You're supposed to be my faithful wife who's just supposed to put up with me, you know? And despite all of that, I have no idea what Romans 3 says, and I've got to go figure that out. So, I go for a walk, and I'm thinking through it, and on the walk, it was like a two-by-four in the head that, you idiot, it's you. She's right. The way back in relationship is not through blame shifting, it's not getting out of it, but is actually taking the word on ourselves first and coming back and saying, you should be, not saying you should be more patient with me, but saying you are right. I am wrong. Your frustration is right. And there's a relationship restored in doing that. Why is that hard? I mean, what about you? What's at stake? You know, where do we find ourselves constantly defending ourselves. You know, if you had a tape recorder and could record the amount of time we spent talking about other people and their problems versus how many times we talk about our own issues and where we fall short, what would that balance be like? I mean, what are you afraid of? Like, what is it that keeps from being able to admit and to take the lesson from God's law and say it's us? It's us that's the problem. Find the mercy that's there. It feels like dying. None of us wants to do it. Because it feels like we're losing something. And that everything's at stake. We won't get respect. We won't have life. But is it in precisely that place where the mercy of God is displayed and is found to those that don't deserve it? And is in that place where we're in a position where we're able to communicate to others what is the true message of God's law? And so we'll move on to that second. So if we accept this, as Paul is saying, that the law is not given to condemn those outside, it's given to us to bring us to conviction and repentance, let's try that on for size. Let's look through God's law and let's see what it says about us. So that's our second point. What is the proper message of God's law? Look at verse 9 and 20. He summarizes and says, What then? 
So if we put this on for size, are the Jews any better off? And the answer is no. If we take the answer like that, that based on our own merit, there is really no different. That all Jews and Greeks, religious people, non-religious people, are all under sin. And then he goes on and lists these, this list of passages throughout the Old Testament to illustrate his point. And this is really, really, really interesting in a lot of ways what he's, what he's doing here. First of all, this is all over the Old Testament that he's pulling quotations from. This is about the people of God and the behavior of those inside of the people of God specifically. This is from all different time periods in Israel's history. And we keep seeing these same things over and over and over again. There's no one righteous. No one seeks God with their whole heart over themselves. And no one does what he says rather than what we want to do. And then these just really graphic. Their throats are an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. There's venom on their lips. Now look at what he's illustrating here. If you were in the first century in this time period where Paul is writing, then you would kind of get this way of describing, you would get the point. See, Paul is starting up top with the illustrations of the lips and the mouth. It's like this evil just flowering from inside the person, from the top, outside the mouth, and the lips. And then he goes down and references the feet of the person. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruined in misery. And then all the way back up the top, there's no fear of God before their eyes. If this was us, this is, this is a way of illustrating the phrase from top to bottom. Totality. That there is sin from top to bottom. But not only top to bottom, top to bottom, and then back up to the top again. Everywhere. And these are passages who, in, like in Psalms, that are comparing those who take refuge in the Lord versus those who fit these descriptions. And what we find that Paul's arguing in this letter is that we see a lot of sin visibly like this even in the people of God. But some are more secret, which is sin nonetheless. But the general effect of it is that the ones who have God's law and who have had it throughout the centuries, a clear articulation of what God wants from us, it has made no fundamental difference in the human condition. It is just the same as those outside of the body like we saw in Romans chapter 1. It is a harrowing assessment of what it is even like to be a religious person, that the law is not enough. And he's driving to this point that no one will be justified by works of the law. That's the point. The law is not enough to change the human condition. And why is that? Look back in verse 9. He says, For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. This is not just that there's sin present, that they make mistakes from sometimes, but he's referring to the power of sin. That when human beings rebelled against God, all of a sudden there's a record of debt, of ways that we have all broken His law that stand against us, that we can't undo. No way we can go back to the past and undo what we've done. But beyond that, there's a severed relationship with God. So that we don't have His life into us anymore and we continue not to seek Him but to seek ourselves. We want to do whatever we want to do. We want to go our own way. This might not be obvious, but have you ever found yourself put in a stressful situation? 
and see how you change underneath that stress. Like with us, I mean, Mara and I have four kids. We say all the time, almost every day, I thought I was a really patient person until we had all of these children who were demanding on us all the time. And all of a sudden it's obvious there's a war going on inside of me and us at I want to be happy. I don't want to wake up in the middle of the night. I don't want to wipe another nose. Sometimes it's marriage. Sometimes it's a co-worker relationship that, where it just doesn't work. Any kind of situation of stress, stuff tends to come out. When it really comes down to it, we want what we want at the end of the day. And no amount of instruction, no amount of education, no amount of direction can change the attitude of the human heart. This is the message of what God's law show us, shows us. And he says that in verse 20 right down to the point that through the law comes knowledge of sin and we can see it. I think this invites us to look at ourselves and to ask how do we use God's instruction to benefit ourselves rather than to see our own sins? I mean, we can look at our pride. Where do we feel superior to other people? Maybe it's ideas. Maybe it's our position in life. Maybe it's our education. Maybe it's the way we drive. I can't stand it when I pull up to a four-way stop sign and we get there at the same time and the person on the right just won't go. They just wait for me to go, but I'm on the left. The rule says that you're supposed to go first if you're on the right. Clearly, I'm a better driver. Like all of these people, they don't know how to drive. I'm more righteous than they are. It's like that kind of thing. We joke in our community group all the time about how to load, load the dishwasher. What is the creative, the correct way to load the dishwasher? It is so natural to have a sense of superiority over others, which is a way of using the works, our outward performance, as a way to justify ourselves, which the message of God's law is that what cannot happen. Flip it around the other way. What are you afraid of people finding out? Where's the shame? What is the thing if people actually knew this about me, I would be disadvantaged and they would be at a position better than me? It's the exact same thing. It's an attempt to be justified by works of the law so that we get security, we get meaning, and we get purpose by how well we do. But taking this assessment, the message of God's law is that nobody will be justified by works of the law. It's been tried over centuries and centuries, and it has had no effect. But where does that leave us? So that's kind of a downer to think about. This is the end of the bad news I want us to see. And Paul wants us to see the truth about ourselves so that we'll draw a particular conclusion from this. When we see our own sinfulness, how we fall short of God's law, we really have two options. We could turn in despair and say, I can't keep it. I can't be right in God's sight by what I do. Perfectly, 100%. I might as well give up. I might as well do what I want to do. I can't do it. It's not a fair game. 
never mind. Thanks for playing. I'm going to go home. That's one option. But Paul wants us to receive a different conclusion here. This is the third point, the conclusion of God's law. What does he want us to draw from this? As he's bringing us to a point of crisis, he's bringing us to the edge of a cliff so that we don't know what to do. The other option is to ask this question. Is there another way? If no human being will be justified by the law, is there another way? To be right with God. And if we are to flip, and we will we'll show you, if we were to go one verse further, everything changes. There's a but. Now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law in Jesus Christ. It was put forward as a propitiation for sin. As Jesus Christ was given as a sacrifice... So that all of the sin in our own hearts, every way we fall short, was given its due justice, not on us, but on Jesus Christ. And He died in our place. So the record of debt, that power of guilt against us, has been washed away and put in the grave with Jesus. But it is more than that. As Jesus has canceled the record of debt, as it was buried in the grave with Jesus, He rose from the dead defeating death itself and so that there is new life. That by faith, believing in Him, not from a sense of superiority, but from humility, looking to Him for grace and for mercy, that it is there. That through the Holy Spirit, His heart is given to us so that we can be changed from the inside out. Even though we still sin every day in this need to continue to return to Him in repentance never changes. It can be done not in a way of despair, but in a way of assurance that Jesus Christ, we are united to Him, I am in Him, He is in me, and He is changing me from the inside out. And what does that do? What does it do for us when we are brought to this crisis? We can see the truth about ourselves. And we are in a position where we can see Jesus and the grace that is given to us in Him. There is total freedom. There is no more shame. There is no more need to perform. There is no more need to despair. Even that we're going on a downward trajectory. That our story has been flipped upside down. And we now belong to Him. And He belongs to us. That is the hope of the gospel. And that is the conclusion that Paul wants us to see. He wants us to see the truth, not so that we will despair, but so that we, in the little moments and in the big moments as we go through our every, everyday lives, we will stop looking at ourselves and we will look to Him in faith and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. And there are we in a position to proclaim the good news of the gospel to others because we have tasted it for ourselves. That's the true purpose of God's law. It's a hard truth, but there is, and it is absolutely what we don't want to hear, but it is absolutely there where there is tremendous freedom that the things that haunt us and that we feel guilty about and we struggle with are gone forever. Let's pray.
Dear Father, again, we thank you that you were good enough to us to speak to us truthfully, even when the news is hard to hear. But thank you especially that you did not leave us in our own, our own sinful state, but that you gave Jesus up for us. That by looking to him in faith, that we could be free. That we could be free of the condemnation of the law that was poured out on Jesus. And we could be given the righteousness of Jesus. I pray that you would sink that truth into our hearts. All of us need repentance. All of us out of fear or hanging on to things deep in our hearts that we don't want to let go of because we're afraid or we're too prideful. I ask that you would bring conviction and you would bring repentance so that everyone here can taste the life that is in Jesus given for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.